You're listening to Sore Sessions with Dr. Trish and Jeff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Sore Sessions here with everyone's favorite doctor, Dr. Trish Herford. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. It's been a great week, and uh, we had some ideas for today's show, and, and one of the things that... Uh, we, you and I have talked about is that uh, we uh, talk about a lot of the same things over and over. Patients ask a lot of the same questions, have a lot of the same concerns. So we thought today we would address back pain, the common myths associated with back pain. Yes, and answer those for patients. Would you believe, doctor, that 80% of Americans would have a bout of back pain in their lifetime. I would believe that, and that's a true statistic. It's the number two reason for visits to the doctor. How much would you estimate Americans spend on the treatment of back pain? Direct or indirect costs to the treatment of back pain? Because you can include in that missed days of work, training of hires and when you do that you get into the billions an estimated 50 billion dollars associated with missed work missed time um, and then the actual cost of treatment related to back pain and it represents a big part of the patients that we see here at SOAR Medical so today we're going to play a game fact First fiction. I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. And you're going to tell me if it's fact or fiction. And we're talking back pain. Related specifically to back pain. Okay. I can do this. I believe in you. Are you ready? I'm ready. I hope you learned something here. Every day may not be a good day, but there's good in every day, doctor. Ah, that's warm. You're welcome. All right. Question number one. Fact or fiction? Yes. The spine is fragile and breaks down easy. Fiction. Well, I mean, in the majority of healthy people, that's definitely fiction. Yes. This is a question or this is a concern that a lot of people have uh, that come into the office is that they've been told so many times you can't do this or you can't do that. And the fact is the studies are very poor at showing that certain movements, certain lifting, certain twisting Actually, or restrictions in general. Does any benefit um, at all? In fact, when I was starting my training, we used to take people out of work for a week when they had complaints of back pain that was at least moderate in intensity. Then it became two days, and that was the standard of care, and that's what the research supported. Now we know that even a day of rest is probably detrimental to recovery from most episodes of acute back pain. Question number two. Fact or fiction? Rest is the best treatment for back pain. Fiction. I'll say you. I say me. Rest actually can feel good initially, but delays recovery. And our bodies will lose muscle much faster than we can regain it. 
short periods of rest, although they feel good, they slow down recovery. Because if there's inflammation um, or injury, you want the blood vessels in general, this is simplified, to kind of move out the inflammation, and they only do that by increasing activity. If you're laying around, you can stiffen up, decondition or lose that muscle mass very quickly, which can prolong recovery. So the recommendation that we give to patients of, hey, you need to be active. Active doesn't mean marathons, doesn't mean triathlons. It just means something. Yeah, it doesn't even mean doing what you're used to doing. It just means keep moving. And that may mean short periodic walks during the day. It may mean avoiding sitting for long periods of time, so getting up and moving. It's certainly, um, the recommendation is certainly not bed rest. Question number three. Fact or fiction? Most back pain is related to some form of misalignment. Fiction. So every person who has scoliosis which there's an alignment problem, and scoliosis is a curvature to the spine, you would anticipate pain, and that indeed is not the case. In addition, there are um, multiple types of arthritic changes or alignment problems that can happen in the spine that don't produce pain or may be seen on an x-ray during a workup but have not produced pain for many years until something else precipitates an evaluation in our clinic for back symptoms. What about slipped discs? I love that term, slipped. Makes it sound like it can kind of slide in and out. And that's not true. The disc itself is, I, I used to hear physicians describe it as a donut with a jelly center. It's more like crab meat. So if you think of crab meat in that very stringy. It doesn't. You can't. Into, you can't picture that or visualize. I'm vegan. If you were a p- pescatarian, <laughs> you would understand. Is it similar to tofu? No, crab meat doesn't go in and out. It doesn't slip in and then slide back in. So the disc can push outwards. So you have this material that pushes back into the spinal canal. Sometimes it abuts a nerve root. That by itself does not cause pain. There's a large number of patients beginning at age 35 and increasing as we get older who have abnormalities, including disc herniations or slip disc on their MRIs and never have pain. So a slip disc doesn't necessarily cause back pain or a disc herniation does not necessarily cause back pain. For the record, I do describe it as a jelly donut to all our patients because I find that people know what a jelly donut is, but no one has ever had a crab meat filled donut. Technically, I think that might be a kolache, but I digress. Question number four. Fact or fiction? Improving your posture alone will not improve your back pain. Fact. Posture by itself will not improve back pain symptoms. Again, from question number two, I believe, malalignment issues, including postural issues, by themselves do not produce back pain. 
However, if you strengthen those postural muscles, it may help with the muscle tightness that's producing pain from a strain. So it can help with the recovery, but by itself is unlikely to be producing the symptoms. Yeah, there's actually been a lot of research on posture, and no one can agree on the perfect posture. They postulate that the best posture is a continually changing posture, that the ability to move from one posture to the other fluidly and freely is maybe the best posture, but there isn't just one posture, which is exactly why there's never been one mattress or one pillow that works for everybody. And it's one of my biggest recommendations to patients when they come in with back pain as they recover. You are going to be stuck in your recovery process if you don't attain that normal, more fluid range of motion, which goes to your point on the postulating posture hypothesis, changing positions or moving fluidly from one position to another. Side note, do you ever recommend a type of pillow or a type of mattress? No, they have a million great studies. If you go into the mattress store, everybody has an answer for you, but the the studies are pretty clear. There's no great mattress. There's one mattress that they can say is definitely not good for you. It's the free-flowing waterbed, which I haven't seen since, what, the late 80s? I beg to differ, because I had one <laughs> as a child, and they were fantastic. You probably had the satin sheets on there, so you just slide right across. You betcha I did. Did you have a leak in your waterbed? On several occasions, we had leaks, and I had a second-story home, and uh, my brother and I both had waterbeds because they were really in style when I was younger. My brother worked in the waterbed store. I had a great waterbed. I had a regular waterbed. Then I had one of the motionless waterbeds. That was was high dollar. It was a high dollar. Those were nice. Kind of warm in the winter. Fantastic. Oh, my goodness. It would be terrible now with the, the aging female body. Those hot flashes would not would not take kindly to a heated waterbed. In any event, there are no great mattresses. To f- if you want something firm and you have a, a mattress that's relatively new and you don't want to go out and spend a fair amount of money, place your mattress on the ground without box springs. And if that is more comfortable for a patient, then they probably should have a firmer mattress. On the flip side of that, you can add, there are so many foam overlays that you can put on an existing mattress if you want something with more cushion that are relatively inexpensive. If patients are going out to purchase mattresses, spend time in the mattress store. Take your time, a few hours, lay in a position. The best recommendation for sleep postures is probably sidelining on your back from if you have back problems with pillow support between your knees if you're on your sides or under your knees if you're on your back. But the key is to try to duplicate the normal curvatures of your existing body in a position that you could handle for several hours throughout the night. And a mattress that can help you do that will probably be the most comfortable for you. So that's an important point. You said the best posture or sleeping position is a position that can recreate your existing curvature of your spine. 
that's different than what a textbook may show is the quote-unquote normal spine. People may have changed or aged, which is why a mattress 10 years ago may still be in decent shape, but may not be good for you. Question number five. Fact or fiction? MRIs and CT scans are the best way to diagnose what is causing your back pain. Absolute fiction. That's impossible, doctor. We have tons of patients that ask us every day for MRIs because they want to get to the bottom of why their back hurts. Explain that to me. I can take nearly every patient, actually not even a patient, take a population off the street beginning in their mid-20s it used to be older, but we subject our bodies to so many more stressors these days, including backpacks as a child. And st- if you start scanning them, CT or MRI, you're bound to find an abnormality. And those patients don't necessarily have symptoms. You randomly chose them. So a good clinician will do an examination. And the biggest reasons to perform advanced imaging, number one, if there are red flags, meaning somebody presents to you with a serious back condition that requires more emergent exploration. For example, if they have progressive weakness, if they have um, the inability to control bowel and bladder, um, if they're losing weight and have a significant amount of pain and you're worried about a cancer or tumor, those would be red flag symptoms and require more advanced imaging when you initially see a patient. Other than that, the next most common reason to perform advanced imaging is I have identified an irritation of the nerve. I suspect it's either due to a disc herniation or aggravation of a a condition in their spine that um, is obvious from exam, and they are going to undergo an interventional procedure where needles going in their back. At that point, I would order advanced imaging. You don't want to stick your needle into something that you're not prepared to deal with. The third most common reason is primarily from a medical legal standpoint. If you have a patient who's been injured at work or in a car accident or other personal injury situation, much of the advanced imaging done is for um, case management. How do you deal with this? Um, having information that can be used to either um, identify or confirm the source of pain to give a better prognosis on recovery times or to distinguish an old versus new problem. Uh, I spend, uh, I do a fair amount of our new patient evaluations in the clinic, and I spend a lot of time trying to explain this phenomenon. So when you have your speech prepared, do patients accept that, or do you end up ordering the MRI? I actually may be in the eyes of some of the people that trained me a bad clinician in that I I still will let patients pick sometimes, but I try to explain it openly and honestly. And, and what I mean by that is I explain to patients, especially acute back pain, it's, let's say it's not even really acute, but let's say we're six, eight weeks into something, and but they don't have radicular symptoms, meaning they don't have numbness and tingling. They don't have weakness. They just have back pain. And they have fear. 
that they're they are fearful that there's something really serious going 100%. on. Hundred percent, totally, and I totally respect that. And I explained to them that the downside sometimes to imaging is that patients we will we will order imaging and we will find stuff. They will get a laundry list report on their MRI because we know we find those things on it, a lot of people. And then patients, they come back happy that you've established a reason they have pain, but then they sometimes get frustrated because th- you, you just spent 10 minutes telling them you have bulging discs, you have this, that, and the other, and they go, great, now what are we going to do? And you go, same stuff we talked about at the first appointment. You're going to physical therapy, some medications, some, you know, um, conservative care because that's still the treatment because at the end of the day, and I think all our, I hope all our patients have heard this by now. And I, if not, I will find all the ones that haven't and I'll tell them we treat people. We don't treat images. That's a hundred percent. Right. That's correct. And we want function over disease function over x-ray findings. So regardless of what we see, and if we identify, and our exams are really there just to identify those more serious conditions, regardless of that um, initial evaluation, if an acute finding that's not dangerous or not considered severe enough for us to to you know light a fire for more treatment, we should be reassuring our patients and keeping them moving because ultimately our best days are our patients who never have to see us again. Absolutely. And I said that sometimes I'm a bad clinician and I go ahead and order those scans because sometimes I do. I appreciate the fear that some patients have. And sometimes it's something they tell you like my, my brother-in-law, died at 30 from a tumor and had back pain and nobody looked at it. And that's really what they're scared of, but they don't want to say it. And sometimes you'll get that information out of them. And so ordering an MRI, while maybe not the most technically clinically correct thing, it means a lot to that patient to kind of take that off the table. Uh, and in many cases that can help promote their recovery when they realize there is not that tumor there. So it's an expensive treatment in a sense, but it is. So I understand that approach. I also, um, we see a lot of patients who come in and they, they've been under the care of maybe a, uh, another physician or chiropractor and no one has ordered advanced imaging because the standard of care or the evidence-based medicine approach is really clear about advanced imaging in the absence of red flags. And so by the time they get to you, it may be 12 weeks or more since their episode of pain began. And those patients feel they've been mishandled by not having advanced imaging ordered before coming to see us. And we have to, I have to spend a lot of time saying, that's no, that's, that's okay. It, you shouldn't, just as you alluded to earlier, you shouldn't have been treated any differently given your presentation regardless of what that MRI shows. You should have gone through conservative treatment, instruction and appropriate movements to keep you going, and that's with physical therapy. Just in the last month, we've had a couple of patients come in that have had some really interesting MRI findings. I mean, we had one a few weeks ago that had one of the largest disc herniations that I've ever seen, and on paper, probably 
was definitely a surgical herniation. He was a younger person. It was very large. Like if you just showed the films to a surgeon, they'd say, yes, I can fix that. But that patient's pain was minimal, except maybe when working out for very long periods of time. Then we've also seen several patients where their MRI findings aren't really super impressive, but their pain's off the charts and we can't get it under control. So the symptoms are what dictate the treatment a lot more than just some one clinical finding. I mean, there are people that undergo lumbar fusions for disc tears, annular tears, which in and of themselves don't look, quote, impressive on MRIs, but they hurt very badly. And don't respond to conservative treatment. I I share this story and... I'm just going to mention the first name of my patient I saw probably 10, 15 years ago. His name is Terry. The worst-looking X-ray, MRIs, CTs combined than of any person I've ever seen. And yet his complaint and the reason he sought treatment is he had a little bit of tingling in his legs. And from his mid-back down, honestly... I can't even describe it. It was, but Terry didn't have a lot of symptoms, and he certainly didn't need to undergo any aggressive treatment based on his examination, and Terry's still fine. So that x-ray had nothing to do with how Terry felt. Yeah, I think the thing that I always say to patients is, how is, if you come in and your pain is a 3 out of 10, and we show you an MRI that shows that you have the largest disc herniation in the world, but your pain's a two or a three. How is putting metal plates and screws and doing all that really going to improve that at the end of the day? It's really a hard, it's a hard reach for some of those patients. Now, if your pain's a 10 out of 10 and you can't get out of a chair and you can't walk and you can't go to the bathroom and all those things, then it's a different story. Absolutely. So don't, the take-home message here is don't take your MRI and use it as uh, the boilerplate for treatment because it sometimes isn't that, that way. And in fact, if you think about the way we approach therapeutic treatments from a physical therapy or chiropractic standpoint, you anticipate certain movements are worse with certain types of back problems, yet that you know, not everybody follows the cookbook. So, again, treating a patient and not an image. Question six. Fact or fiction? Once you experience back pain, you are doomed for life to always have back pain. Fiction. You can have back pain. It may always come back, but it doesn't necessarily mean it will. It depends on what you do to recover and how you accept it. This is a topic that we talk a lot about because it can be a pretty, if you just listen, if you just read the transcript of an office visit with one of us and a 40-year-old patient who's just diagnosed with a disc bulge or some radiculopathy, that might be a really depressing transcript because you have to have the discussion that, look, you're having these symptoms, we'll improve them. They may come back. We don't really know. They probably will come back at some point, 
most likely, but we don't really know how often or how bad or any of those things. And so people sometimes get depressed about that. Or you tell them they have arthritis in their spine. Well, to some people, that's like you just now curse them with a lifetime of discomfort. And again, that's not necessarily true. I tell them all the time. You know, I'm telling you this, but I don't know anything. Like, we may inject you once and not see you again for several years or maybe ever. Or you may, unfortunately, be started on a path where you're in every few months. We really don't know. Or, you you know, you could end up in a surgeon's hands. I think it's important for us, again, to share with patients you can have back, again, there is a certain level of back pain that may be reasonable to accept, but it's not necessary. And don't just because you've been told you have a diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean you have to live with that feeling or that pain forever. Question seven. Factor fiction. Herniated discs and back pain in general are definitively treated and the best treatment is surgical. Fiction. It, it may be, but less than 10% of patients with disc herniations require surgical treatment. And surgical treatment is indicated for severe pain, progressive weakness, or any of those red flag symptoms that may indicate more aggressive treatment is needed more emergently. In the absence of that, Patients who undergo conservative treatment and those who undergo surgical treatment will oftentimes have the same outcomes if you compare those two groups. The only difference being that surgically managed disc herniations recover faster, but their outcomes at two years are about the same. There's also unique issues related to surgical treatments and the potential for further problems down the road related to the surgical correction. Yes, even the easy um, 23-hour microdiscectomy procedure puts patient at risk for recurrent disc herniation, which can happen without a new injury. And a second disc herniation procedure may not be performed. It might end up turning into a fusion. And infusions are just a whole different podcast that we can talk about. Yeah, we're, uh, you and I have deep feelings, strong feelings about fusions. I think fusions, um, there are some great surgeons who approach fusions like I would approach them as a surgeon. And there are some surgeons in St. Louis who are not quite quite as strict in their approach and um, has led to some disabling of patients that I think is unfair to the the person. It's a whole different ball of wax. It uh, patients will come in here that are been told they need a fusion, and sometimes you know they're trying to avoid it. And those patients that we that we see might usually, if they ask my opinion, my opinion is you want to try to avoid that as long as you can. As long as anything's helping keeping you moving short of a fusion, you should try to do that because the unique thing about a fusion is even when they go perfect and your pain is better, 
you're not completely out of the woods because of the mechanics of a fusion. Right. And it, it can certainly change lifestyle, and that recovery is long. Question number eight. Core strengthening is the be-all, end-all treatment for back pain. That is fiction. It's important in back pain recovery, but is not the be-all, end-all. So if you read about core strengthening, there's a lot of things on the Internet that say that, you know, you can over-strengthen your core and you can over-tighten your core and that could potentially increase pressures on the discs. There's studies to say that core strengthening has no correlation with improving back pain. But I will say this, we recommend core strengthening to almost all our patients. The interesting thing is that a lot of patients that come in that have back pain don't have good core at all. So while you don't need core strength, maybe everybody doesn't need an APAC, but they need a basic level of core strengthening. They need to be able to engage those muscles. More interesting than that is if you get into advanced core strengthening, what's the rest of your body doing? You've engaged the body to to move. You've engaged the body to begin um, some in some ways flexibility training included with that. And then core strengthening is an extension of more generalized body strengthening, which uh, goes back to the function, 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 function. When a patient asks you, what can I do to prevent my back from hurting again? What do you say? So having experienced bad back pain and having um, disc herniations at a young age and now having that degenerative back and spondylolisthesis and all those nice things that are terrible um, words for us to share with patients, I can tell you the best thing you can do is just keep moving and strengthen, strengthen, strengthen. If you've had that episode of back pain and you never want to have it again, you work your ass off not to get there. You start moving. You, you get in shape. You lose weight. You stop smoking. My answer typically is about the only things that you can control on your end as a patient are your weight and then your core and flexibility. So I often say... And smoking. And smoking. Smoking's huge. And I often say, become a Pilates or yoga freak and keep your weight down. But if you look at what that really is saying is keeping your core strong, maintaining your flexibility, staying active, and keeping your weight down. But it's just put into a different package. But I say that to a lot of patients because I think sometimes patients really want... They need a thing. They need a... Oh, they, they told me... They need restrictions. They need guidelines. Go to yoga. Check. I went to yoga. Lose 50 pounds. Check. Yoga is probably my favorite thing that I wish I wish we could make it more mainstream. I wish yoga was as easy to get somebody to do as CrossFit slash Orange Theory slash something or another, but yoga carries with it, I don't know, maybe a stigma or something. It's really hard to get the farmer from Farmington to talk about going to yoga. But I think it would help a lot of people. And certainly I think is when we deal with our pain population, that moment of Zen that you would get in yoga, 
And yoga is great, but it isn't for everyone. So I think yoga is... I beg to differ. <laughs> you had one yoga class with me. It was painful. <laughs> it was great. I own a yoga CD set. <laughs> Power yoga with Jeff. You guys act now for thirty nine ninety five. I will put on a leotard and I will walk you through <laughs> downward dog. Oh my. What am I thinking? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Question number nine. Diagnosed conditions in your 30s and 40s will always get worse. That's actually fact and fiction. It will look worse on x-ray in general. That's sort of a broad question, but in general, your x-rays will look worse over time. However, the x-ray correlation to symptoms does not exist. So you may not always feel this that pain. Um, there's a potential you might feel it worse. But in general, if you take good care of yourself, the symptoms you experienced in your youth are not going to be the symptoms um, that you experienced in your future. Which takes us back in a full circle to a couple of things. One, you treat patients, not pictures. Two, MRIs and pictures are poor correlators to a person's pain. And prognosis. And we treat symptoms, not Again, this is back to that imaging. Your your pictures are going to get worse, but what we really care about are your symptoms. And what we really care about is how you function, how you move, and how you feel moving. And that's the take-home message. So on, at the end of all of our sessions, we have the getting hammered with Dr. Trish and Jeff. So it's my chance to ask Jeff some questions. He's quite prepared for these. I knew there was something because she was grinning from ear to ear, looking at her phone, and I knew something was up. All right. Jeff Todd, what conspiracy theory do you think is really real? I really do go down these rabbit holes quite frequently. I believe that there have been significant alien events on this earth. You do mention the aliens quite frequently. Have you been abducted yourself? Never that I know of. But as I learned in the hypnosis segment, I may have compartmentalized that event and I just don't recall it. Number two, if you taught a high school class, what class would you teach? Oh, study hall. <laughs> No, you can't teach that. You'd be throwing spitballs at kids. Not woodshop, because I'd lose a finger. Um, if I taught a high school class, I'd probably teach world history. I really enjoy world history. Not geography. One of your children is a geography whiz, and you're not the parent that actually shared that. No. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. World history. World history. Jeff Todd lives in the past. Those that do not pay attention to the past i honestly history was the worst for me uh, i will have to share my Sa san antonio experience with you we lost at the alamo but i didn't realize that until the end of the <laughs> imax god are there any foods that you just don't get why anyone would eat them salad no <laughs> um that's my problem so like horse tongue or monkey brain hey who am i to judge i don't know i've never had them oh good lord <laughs> you sure i don't know i've have eaten a lot of street vendors so maybe i have 
had some of that. Do their families miss them? <laughs> what is your spirit animal? My wife would say a sloth. <laughs> You're not a sloth. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think maybe a bear. Kind of bear-like. I enjoy fishing like a bear. Oh, yeah. And you got big paws. Mm. Hibernation's not so bad. Bear sounds good. Bear. Text bear. A mule. My dad would probably say a mule. An a ass. jackass. <laughs> That's right. If you were a professional athlete, what sport would you want to play? This is a very easy. Uh, baseball. Really? What position? I don't care. Because it's a strictly a financial argument. Baseball has guaranteed contracts, not a lot of running, and they make good money. Football... No guaranteed contracts, beat yourself up, get hurt all the time, and you could be cut tomorrow. You have a contract for $50 million, but you get cut tomorrow and get nothing. Baseball or professional basketball. NBA, um, yeah. Yeah, you get guaranteed contracts. Well, I think this ends another sore session. Jeff, your answers were... Predictable. Predictable. Until next time. This has been Dr. Trish and Jeff. Thank you, guys. 